Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Recorded live. All right. This is episode three in the podcast series, Voices from Industry. And I'm here today with... Stephen Gilbride, uh, founder and president of SG Research International. I'll turn it over to Steve in just a moment um, to introduce himself and to introduce uh, his company. Um, but I, you know, I'd just like to remind everyone uh, that this is the, uh, the this is a, a podcast focused on clinical outsourcing, focused on different roles in clinical outsourcing. And as we heard in the previous episode, um, based on what your perspective is and where you, you where outsourcing touches you. Um, you can have different experiences and have different um, different perspectives on where the industry is today and where it will be going. And that's what we're going to discuss today with Steve. So with that, Steve, I'll, I'll turn it over to you. Could you give us a kind of a recap of your background and, and kind of how you came to found uh, SG Research International? Sure. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Dennis. Um, let me just give you a little bit about my uh, academic uh, background. I went to uh, Chaminade University. I have a bachelor's degree. Uh, Chaminade is in Honolulu, Hawaii. A small private uh, college, uh, most people don't know it unless um, you follow college basketball. We were the team we, we were the team that beat uh, Virginia when they had Ralph Sampson. So if anyone is over the age of, I don't know, <laughs> 35, 40, you'll, you'll, you'll remember. Um, but actually from there, I won a scholarship to the University of Cape Town in South Africa. This is in like 1988. Um, and I came back to the U.S. and I landed a job, even though I don't have like a science background, I landed a job almost by accident at uh, a small little company. Someone gave me that card. I, I didn't didn't know how to pronounce it. Um, and the CEO had given me his card, and he said, you know, come come see me. And when I went to see him, I didn't realize that it wasn't a small company, and I couldn't pronounce the name of the company. It was called Pfizer, P-F-I-Z-E-R. I had no idea how to, how to pronounce it. And basically, I got hired on, on the spot. And... Um, I was doing some uh, thing called quality control, quality assurance, although no one at the time in 1990 could figure out what the difference was at, at the company at the time. But what I was doing was looking at uh, uh, things called SAEs, serious adverse events, and I was comparing it to make sure there were no potential serious adverse events in the project database. And, um, and so that really began my career at uh, Pfizer. And when I was at Pfizer, because I didn't have a, a science degree, a lot of people didn't really take me seriously. I was kind of like a political science, international relations uh, major. So I enrolled at Long Island University. They had a program, a master's program in drug regulatory affairs. And actually back then, there were only a few universities that had this program. Temple was the, the big one. Uh, Long Island University, the uh, School of Pharmacy was the, the other one, and initially it took six years to get the degree, but um, uh, I got mine in two and a half years because they changed the program. Anyway, um, I worked in different levels of uh, experience uh, at Pfizer and quality assurance. I left Pfizer for a short period of time, for about a year or so, then came back to came back to Pfizer. And um, 
I've been doing audits. I was doing audits, uh, GCP audits, primarily in clinical sites, uh, uh, looking at the vendors, qualifying vendors. So they didn't have a really well-defined program at the time. You would do an audit, give it to the head of clinical, and they thank you for it. And there really were no CAPAs or follow-ups. It was kind of like a GMP um, process that clinical really, at the time, didn't really uh, understand all that well. Uh, then they were given out packages in 2005, 2006, and I thought I would take advantage of it. And I started my own company, SG Research International, and I've worked for you know big pharma. I've worked for Sherman Plow, uh, Merck, Allegan, but I've also worked for you know mid-sized uh, biotechs and small biotechs. In 2013, I opened up an office in uh, Beijing, China, because of the opportunities that I uh, perceived uh, in China, and it's actually well in, in China. So um, having said that, uh, I've been doing this um, uh, now for about uh, 11 years. Uh, what I do not just audits, but I do uh, SOP development, uh, working with the small clients to um, you know, qualify vendors to make sure that the vendors have the right, uh, uh, the requisite skills in order to perform the clinical trials. Also do uh, site audits uh, as well. And so I have a, a group of a pool of GCP auditors who are placed uh, all around the world. My competition is uh, Quintiles and Paracel and uh, Covance, and these are uh, multinationals. I can't compete with them. But what I can compete with them on is uh, my auditors all around the world have, uh, similar to myself, 20, 25 years. In fact, I have one auditor that has 35 years of pharmaceutical experience. So I kind of leverage that. Um, to help to help clients, and they're in Australia, South Africa, in Europe, uh, uh, in China, Japan, uh, here in the U.S., of course, and uh, Latin America. And uh, that's just a little bit about uh, about my company right now. Interesting. I mean, it's you know one of the common threads through some of the conversations we've had in the previous podcast, so that similar to your background, people don't always take linear um, linear tracks through their career. Oftentimes, they're they're coming from different areas outside of pharma or working within different functions in pharma and kind of jumping around laterally. And it sounds like, um, you know, that, that's kind of what led you to where you, you know, where you are today, just kind of a, a myriad of having international experience, having studied abroad, and then, you know, having some exposure to the drug industry, but, you know, perhaps coming from a unique um, background and perspective on it. And actually, when I, when I studied abroad back then, um, it's kind of common now, but back in the 1980s, it was very rare that people study abroad. And also, I was, I was going to a conflict zone. Uh, South Africa was undergoing a revolution, <laughs> in essence. Huh. Oh, man. <laughs> Exciting times. Exciting times. So it was interesting. You brought up, I mean, part, you know, part of what you do today, and I know that we've worked together in this capacity, is, you know, is in, in qualifying providers, clinical service providers. Um, and, and, you know, you kind of sit in a unique spot because you don't really have any dogs in the race. You, you've got, you know, you're somewhere between. Um, even though you're hired by the sponsor, you know, you, you kind of sit as a neutral party between the sponsors and the providers. So um, that's an area that we've kind of dedicated, we dedicated a unit in the course actually to the qualification process and spent some time in the, in the course um, discussing it on the discussion board and, and through the lecture. Um, you know, kind of based upon your, you know, your experience supporting, you know, both sides of quality assurance services. Is, you know, can you share with the class your perspectives on kind of what the key areas are for, for both sponsors and providers that they should focus on um, with respect to, to maintaining their quality management systems and, you know, maintaining their quality, you know, within the context of an outsourcing arrangement? Well, it's a, it's a, a couple of points you make. 
Um, the, the one thing that I, I feel, I'm, I'm always considering myself independent. I'm independent of the vendor. I'm also independent of the sponsor. If I find things that I think the sponsor is deficient, I have to put that in the report. It's not so much to get the, the uh, just find the deficiencies of the, the vendor to make sure the process is working. The, the one thing I think is worth noting is that um, the a lot of times sponsors call their vendors partners, and um, I don't think they are uh, partners. A partner is different than a vendor. I'm a vendor in essence. I'm really not not a partner. I have a friend of mine from AstraZeneca who wrote an article a while ago. He called it uh, strategic partnership is an oxy is an oxymoron. And so I think when, when you're looking at vendors, I think we have to look with our eyes wide open. You know, they, they may, you may work with them and you have a relationship, and, and I, I, that I can appreciate. But I go in to look at the quality systems, not so much that they're a partner, but really that they're a vendor providing uh, a specific service, what service is. In terms of quality, most of the vendors do have a you know, quality management system or they have a quality policy things like that, uh, for the most part. <clears throat> uh, looking at them, you, you, the question you always have to ask is, yeah, you have these, but how effective are they? You know, I just recently did an audit in, uh, outside of Chicago, and, you know, they have, uh, you know, paper, uh, you know, training records, and, and generally speaking, when it's paper, you find more errors than you would if they're electronic. But when I looked at their SOPs, their SOPs said that they do, um, they themselves do, um, site audits. And so I said, well, how many site audits do you do? They said, well, we don't do any. I said, well, you have a system, so just looking at it, you would think that you have a pretty comprehensive quality system, but you're not using it. And they said, well, it costs a lot of money. I said, you know, it's, it's, a lot of things cost a lot of money. If, if you can't do it, you shouldn't say that you do do it. So I think you have to go in there and actually look uh, from, from the, the sponsor's point of view, do they have a, uh, a really robust quality management system? <clears throat> And very simply, uh, to me, a quality management system is you uh, identify issues, you, you're able to escalate those issues, and you're able to resolve those issues. And hopefully that resolution prevents these issues from happening over and over again. And so uh, for the, the sponsor, the expectation is that you, you, the vendors have a, a quality management system, but I look at it really to say how effective is it. A basic you know, qualification visit is to look at uh, job descriptions, to look at uh, um, CVs and training records, and that tells you it tells you something. But when you look at the SOPs, you have to make sure that the SOPs are up to date, uh, uh, that that people actually are trained on them. Um, I did a, a, a CRO audit for a very small vendor in in Houston, Texas, and I asked for their SOPs and. He, this guy, Anthony, who was, was my host, he gave me the SOPs, and as I was looking through them, his paper SOPs, I said, Anthony, there's something wrong. These aren't your SOPs. He said, oh, he goes, I didn't think you were going to read these things. And so, yeah. you know, right off the bat, that's, you know, not strike one or strike two, that's strike three. So they're using SOPs that aren't their own, their own SOPs. And, again, the, the expectation from a sponsor is that you do have a good quality management system in place. Now, on the other hand, some some vendors actually do have a actually a better quality system than the the sponsor has, and so that's also something you you want to uh, highlight in an audit report that uh, you know that you know doing an audit is not just identifying deficiencies, but I think also uh, looking at strengths as well, and that allows the sponsor to make a uh, a more informed judgment whether or not to use uh, a sponsor or not.
Mm, makes sense. Yeah, is there something I know, you know, from conversations with you and, and, and from with others in the industry, um, sometimes the, there's some question is that, you know, what is the key, um, what is the relationship between the qualification visit, you know, pa- pa- kind of passing all the, the, the checks um, for a qualification, and then, you know, the, the level of performance downstream, so how well that, that, that vendor executes um, on whatever service or services they're supposed to deliver. From your, you know, from your perspective, where you've kind of, you know, you've seen, you've kind of been in uh, in pre-qualification audits. Perhaps you've been back to the same vendor, you know, for an in an in-process audit later on. Is there anything you've observed that really helps predict um, downstream, you know, levels of performance when you're in there, kind of qualifying a vendor? Um, <clears throat> there's a big disconnect between the uh, pre-qualification audit and the in-process audit. So they're basically a qualification visit you going in there to make sure that they're there that they again as I mentioned before that you have um, you know a job description that identifies who's going to be doing what and you want to match that to the CV to make sure that they have the the necessary or requisite uh, skills in order to perform perform the function and that they have trainer records and, and all that the the and so it's very difficult it's very difficult sometimes you go in and you say gee you know they're they're pretty good, but you know, um, you know, the, one of the things that I find is that you know, in order to do a, any kind of audit, you send, you contact the the vendor, and you set up a time to see that when it's convenient uh, for them. And then you send a letter out, and then um, you show up. One of the things that I find is that you know, sometimes you talk to a person A, uh, you know, to initially make the initial contact, and when you know, you send out your confirmation letter, you know, person B says, you know, person A is no longer with the with the, the company. And then when you actually do show up for the actual order, you you have person C. Uh, person C is usually the charming face of, uh, you know, chaos, you know. And, and you know, you, you look at the organization and say, gee, like, why can't you keep these people? What is it? I mean, it, it, and to me, that's... Uh, that's a big thing. The CVs and all this, that's easy to, to do. CVs and job descriptions, that's, that's kind of uh, uh, clerical, administrative. You can, you, anybody can, can do that. But I think you really have to have a good sense. You know, and, and you can also look to at the, when you look at the CVs, like what kind of people are they, are they hiring? Are they hiring people who have no experience? And, and also you have to think, too, of, of how CRO's um, vendors operate. Uh, it may not be... Uh, Polite to say, but the the bigger vendors, uh, I have found the bigger vendor, uh, the the bigger vendors like you know the PPDs and Paracels, and I, I don't want to pick on any of them, but some of these vendors have they're multinational, they're traded publicly, they have um, you know they have big clients and they have these preferred providerships with them, so they kind of get the the better CRAs and the beta better data managers and and project managers and, and all that. And as you go down the food chain in terms of uh, the sponsor, you know, uh, the size, you know, you have your, your big Mercs and Pfizer's and Novartis and all that. Then you go down to the midsize. And then sometimes you, you get these companies that are basically a shell. Uh, you will get um, the least experience as you go further down. And so when you, you do a qualification visit, you have to keep all that in mind. You know, you find out the real issues when, you know, the rubber meets the, the road, uh, hits the road, the in-process, you know, that all the promises they made, they have all the, the great staff and these project managers and all that, and 
and then you you know the study gets up and running and it's you know six months in and you go back or eight months whatever it might be and you go back and you do an in process audit then you find out uh, how well how well they're 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 doing or not doing yeah uh, there was one one client one a vendor we used uh, they didn't do a qualification visit because they had worked with the client before they were in, in uh, New Jersey and they did a lot of like uh, the electronic submissions when they were like the first to do it. And they had uh, they did like bookmarkings and and all these fancy links that would help the reviewer mm-hmm. at FDA. And when we we didn't do a qualification visit because uh, management said we don't have to we've used them these guys have been in business and every, everyone uses them. When I did the in process uh, audit, when I walked in, I found out they had forty thousand square feet of space. It was, it was huge, huge. Oh. Um, but they only had six people working there. And it was kind of spooky. All the lights were off, and there were cubicle, rows of cubicle and cubicle, empty cubicles. And so I said to the you know, guy who was hosting the audit, I said, what happened? He said, well, you know, we, we, got, um, we got acquired by a group that has a lot of contracts with the, um, uh, the military, the, the Pentagon and, and all that. And, and they wanted to put life science into their portfolio, but they didn't know what they were doing. So basically people who worked in the company – fled and so oh. th- this becomes quite serious so you know it, it's always important some people say well you don't have to do a qualification visit but i think it is important to do a qualification visit because sometimes you can come in right when the chaos is starting or people are fleeing and it gives you a better sense yeah no i mean this this is an interesting segue into another another section of the course so, one of the, so i think um it's interesting. We talk about regulatory obligations, specifically within clinical outsourcing during the class, and it was, you know, fairly apropos given all the the recent revisions to ICH and all the kind of the hoopla over E6R2. Um, you know, what you're describing, I mean, it sounds like not only do you want to come in at the at the beginning and, and and get a pulse check for the reasons you described. You know, make sure that people there isn't you know a, a, some sort of unwieldy attrition or you know perhaps you know as we've seen in the industry this year quite a bit that you know a lot of uh, some sort of acquisition or you know, changing control that, that kind of stimulated that. Um, but, but you know, the, a lot of what the revisions ICH deal with are formalization of some of those requirements around how you oversee the provider, right, in process, you know, and, and kind of risk-based approaches to quality management, right? So how are you sampling? How are you, you know, how are you coming in and, and in a very, I guess, lean and efficient way um, checking in? I'm curious, you, you know, your your perspectives on the revisions to ICH and then specifically kind of how that has impacted or will impact what sponsors and CROs or other providers are doing and, and how they work together and how they, you know, they make their way through qualification and oversight. Yeah, I, I think that uh, th- there's a lot of changes going on in the industry that uh, are not very clear, in, in, in my opinion. Uh, you know, there's a risk-based approach uh, to oversight and or effective oversight and, and all that. If, if you take a step back, uh, about uh, six, seven years ago, I forget when it was, but uh, the FDA did an audit, uh, an inspection of J&J and ICON. And in essence, what they said as, as they were doing the the inspection, they said, wait, 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 hold on a second. Who's the sponsor here and who's the the vendor? And I, I've had this as, as an auditor myself. You know, I, I've looked around and said, wait, wait, who's calling the shots here? Who's, who, who is, who's in a position of, you know, uh, running the clinical trial? Is it the vendor or is it the, the sponsor? Ultimately, the one thing that hasn't changed with the revision of ICH is that in the end, 
you know, the sponsor can outsource as much as they want, but they are ultimately responsible for uh, all aspects of the trial. Okay. So, uh, for instance, and just very quickly for the ICON uh, J&J letter, you know, they were J&J in the contract said we have the right to veto any um, uh, PI in, in the trial, and they did. They vetoed three or four of them. ICON used them anyway. And, you know, it's very frustrating as, as an auditor when you go in, you say, you know, and, and sometimes you talk to the, the vendor and it's almost like they're the sponsor and they're not. Now, getting back to risk-based approaches, it, it's a very interesting concept, um, I find. You know, it used to be the, the sponsor always did 100% SDV of, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the data, you know, look at the source, source documents, look at the CRF, now ECRF, and you want to make a, a comparison. Several years back, the FDA came out with a you know risk-based approach to monitoring. You know, and, and a lot of it, to tell you the truth, makes sense. I think the, the word risk-based is is a misnomer. I think it would be better if they said intelligent monitoring. That would that would make sense. If, if for instance, if if you're a, a monitor and you're reviewing case report forms and source documents, if there's a lab at every visit, all right, you do visit one, two, three, four, five until ten. You'll see them individually, and you go back every month or whatever the, the monitoring plan says. You really don't pick up a lot. However, if you if you look across uh, on your computer screen and say, "Wow, like I've noticed a spike in hemoglobin at visit four, you might be in a better position to uh, provide this information to the the PI. You know, and so you know, in in my mind, whether it's risk based approach or you know, intelligent monitoring, whatever you may call it, my, my, you know, and, and people may disagree with me, I say there's, there's only two things that are important in all the work we do. And it's uh, the quality of the data. Is it good enough, not just for the clinical trial in phase one, two, or three, but when it gets on the market, do you have to recall it? I worked at Pfizer where they actually did recall <clears throat> a drug and it became, uh, I don't think the stock has recovered in, in, in 20 years. So it has, it has ramifications also poisons relationship with the regulatory agencies. And secondly, the second most important point, are the patients being protected? So the, the risk-based approach or intelligent monitoring, I can see the, the value of it. The problem I find is that it's not defined well, and it means different things to different people. Some people see risk-based and they say, you know what, we can save a lot of money, um, which might be, might be the case. And I've done audits where there have been 100% SDV, and, and all of a sudden I, I noticed they're only doing, you know, 60%. And I said, well, why did you, why did you go down to 60%? What was your rationale? They said, oh, the risk-based approach. I said, no, no, but there has to be a rationale. You still, mm -hmm. at the end of the day, at the end of the day, there's those two important things, quality of the data and protecting the patients. That's, that's the ultimate uh, responsibility of, of a monitor, and you have shared goals. So the auditors, the sponsors, the CROs. And all that, and so I'm. I, I think we're living in a time where it's not really well defined. And I go to industry meetings where people have different takes on what risk-based means and how how it's uh, uh, used uh, effectively. And so the answer to your question is it, it all it all depends. It depends, and I think auditors have an obligation to look and say, well, is, is this really working effectively? Maybe you have to up it. Maybe instead of 60%, you have to go to 75. There should be a rationale. You have to have a rationale. Well, you've gone from 100 down to whatever number it, it might be. And in the absence of that, I, I, I think you're in, in violation of not just of the uh, uh, letter of the regulations, but I think the spirit of the regulations as well. 
because the spirit of the regulations is really to protect the patients and have good, high-quality data. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, one of the you know one of the things we talk about just in a broader context in the class is the alignment or sometimes misalignment of of kind of what are the objectives or the outcomes you're seeking, and then you know backing into that, what sorts of methods, what sorts of models, what sorts of approaches or strategies do you employ? What sorts of relationships do you build? And it sounds like you know from what you're describing, the uh, we you know the the people may have different interpretations of what the objectives are for risk-based monitoring, and sometimes some of the more pragmatic ones like saving some time or money um, can actually derail the overall object quality objectives around you know around why we we would take a risk-based approach. And, and to your point, you know, very early I guess right, very early in the in the life of this this kind of mo new model for for monitoring and for oversight. Um, because you know I think there's um, the expectation for oversight. Uh, it's not so much that you have a contract with them and you send CRAs out there, but I, I think that the I think it's 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 beyond that. You know, I, I think the the inspectors feel very comfortable when you can demonstrate oversight. I said, well, how can you demonstrate oversight? One of the things we did actually, at, uh, as you recall, in, at Sharon Plow is that we we instituted a uh, what I called uh, quality oversight, some called QCOS, it, it somehow adopted mm -hmm. this acronym. But we went out with the CRAs to make sure that uh, when they were knowledgeable about the protocol, then so they knew that a visit, you know, four something changed to visit five, and we assessed them. We looked to see if they had time management skills because now, as you just uh, alluded to, it's, a, it's about time and money. You know, uh, you know, the, the reality is that sometimes in in this country there's thunderstorms and you you want to arrive at uh, six o'clock in the afternoon and you don't arrive till three o'clock in the morning. This happens. Are you going to, you know, do you have to decompress when you get to the site? Do you, you know, do you talk? To the site about uh, your, you know, the, you know, what happened the night before and, and how tough it is to travel, and then you look at your watch and it's like, you know, ten, ten thirty. They haven't got to work yet. So, mm -hmm. I, th I think you have to. I think you have to demonstrate oversight over the vendors. It's no longer, I think, acceptable to really just say, okay, we have a contract with them. And I think that's, uh, in essence, the spirit of the uh, Icon J and J letter is that you know, how do you demonstrate uh, this oversight? Because you, you, you know, and, and I think this. The world we're living in now is that they're all, you know, the, the risk-based approach, I think it, it's more incumbent upon quality assurance to make sure that the system is working correctly. We're, we're changing we're in a change in time. But, but the one thing that hasn't changed, the quality of the data has to be of, of good uh, uh, good quality, and you have to protect the patients, their well-being, their rights, and so forth. And that hasn't changed. Good point. Good point. I'm glad you brought up ICON J&J. &J. That happens to be one of the two case studies in the regulatory section of the, of the unit. So... I think yeah, you did, did a service to the class. You gave them some perspective on that. I'm sure they'll find that useful as they, you know, they formulate their responses. Because uh, you know, I've been years when, when I worked at Pfizer, I'd, I'd go to some of the big multinationals, and in essence, they uh, they pushed you around. It's like this is the way it is, and I was like, wait, hold on, the that's not the way it is. The the, the sponsor is responsible, not the the vendor. Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. All right, so I'm going, to, I'm going to be mindful of time, Steve. I have two more questions for you. One, you know, I think I'd be remiss, especially given you're, you know, you're, you've been in China for, for a number of years now. You have an office there. I know you do a lot of work with um, clients, both, you know, both domestic that work in China and both, you know, Chinese organizations that, you know, that, that, are, that are bringing products to market. I'm interested in your perspective on, on China as an emerging clinical trials market and where you see them today. I know you just got back from a trip, um, so it's probably fresh in your mind. You were, you know, I know you were there for a few weeks. 
What's your perspective in terms of how China is evolving as an emerging market for clinical research and specifically how they're um, how they may evolve, you know, in terms of quality, you know, can we, can we, can we trust the quality of the investigators there, of the vendors we might work with there, of, you know, of the drugs that are being developed from sponsors, you know, in, in that country? What's, what's your thoughts? Well, it's, it's a very good question. Um, uh, I'm not sure how to, how to answer it. However, I'll, I'll give you my, my best shot. Um, I, I go to China probably three, four times a year. And sometimes I go to China and I say, gee, this neighborhood that was here is no longer here. And I see these high-rise buildings that were built in, in a matter of, of months. Yeah? Um, I see roads, and I see um, uh, transportation. They have high-speed trains that are very efficient and effective. Um, things are changing in China. The, when I first went to China in, in 2001, uh, 90% of the people on bicycles. Today, 90% of the people are driving a Lexus, uh, BMW, Mercedes. It's really really amazing, the Lamborghinis. I, I've seen incredible changes in, in that country. In terms of clinical research, I've really seen changes. Um, uh, by the way, just on Friday, on June 2nd, uh, China, CFDA signed on to ICH. Okay, That's, a, right. that's a, uh, an earthquake in terms of, of clinical research. My own feeling is that China will surpass uh, Japan in several years. Um, the Chinese, the, the growth of Chinese companies have been actually fueled by a lot of um, Chinese who, who worked here in the U.S. and I guess they've reached up and felt that glass ceiling. Uh, China has changed. Uh, they've gone back to, the, to China, taken 20 years of experience here in the U.S. And I see it. I've, I've gone to, uh, I, I just did, a, uh, I did two CERO uh, uh, audits within the last couple of weeks. Their English is perfect. Um, they have a lot of experience. They've worked with IC, under ICH for the last, you know, 20 years or so. They understand it. They get it. Um, the Chinese are very entrepreneurial. Um, I'm actually amazed at how uh, mature the market is, is coming. I mentioned about the, the buildings and all that. The CFDA can enforce changes, and they're doing that. And I think that China is uh, there. There, there, there are, there are issues with China. For instance, uh, <clears throat> kind of salties. The uh, people walk around with their uh, medical records. You know, they don't have the space to store. So if you see on the street someone's walking around with an X-ray, and it's you know that's a source oh. document. That you know it, it becomes very challenging. You know, uh, to to verify uh, information. Um, there was a time. Not that long ago, I, I remember talking to an investigator, and I said, uh, "You know, you got to uh, tell me about your informed consent process." And he went on, and he said, "We talk about everything that's in the informed consent." I said, "Do you talk about the benefits?" He said, "Of course, yeah, we always talk about the benefits." I, I said, "Do you talk about the risks?" He said, "Oh no, no, I I, I can't talk about the risks uh, because they won't join the trial." I said, "No, no, this is not a you know, and or you must do and talk about the benefits and the risks." So they may be slightly behind, but I'm I'm telling you in terms of I was at the the DIA uh, in uh, Shanghai last week. It was uh, some of the the presentations by Chinese companies and uh, Chinese uh, sponsors are very very sophisticated and they're performing training because they really want their country to to move forward. So in terms of of uh, quality, I, I think that we've looked at uh, at least I've looked across the board at at least for GMP. GMP, Warner Letters, you used to always have China. Now I find that they're almost exclusively India. So um, I think they've, they've done well. There's one of the CROs I audited um, 
last week or the week before, the CEO of the company <clears throat> worked at FDA. So he's he's bringing you know 25 years experience and plus I think he worked at J and J as well. He's bringing all this experience to do trials right, and so you know in a, in a day where sometimes you really could barely understand, you know, there was a linguistic barrier. I think looking back, uh, looking at it now, you can get some of these CROs and you can speak to people and, and communicate uh, really well because uh, it's, it's no longer a um, you know. Um, you know, a barrier, and I, I think that the, there's more emphasis upon quality. Uh, most of most of the big CROs in, in China do have, you know, a pretty good quality um, a function. I found some deficiencies in terms of they do capture capitas, but don't really trend them um, for the most part. But then again, I did one, you know, last month in Chicago, and uh, huh. they they captured only major and critical uh, observations. But to me. You know, a, a whole bunch of minors could equal a major. A whole bunch of majors yeah. could equal a critical. So I don't think they're really that much of a difference. I mean, there, there are differences, no, no doubt. But it's changing. They signed on to ICH, and they're going to enforce it as well. It's going to be a very exciting yeah. time in China in the next, uh, next decade or so. That sounds like it. Well, thank you so much. I mean, this is perfectly appropriate. You know, here we are sitting on June 5th, and, you know, with that announcement on June 2nd, I think, yeah. you know, it's great. That you I plan to share that. So the um, last question, and then we'll wrap up. So, if you, one of the then this is an item that we pose to, to kind of each of our podcast guests, and I think if, you know, given your experience, given your perspective, I think it'd be great if you could share with the class if you had one piece of advice for professionals. And as you know, you know, our, our class is made up of professionals at all different stages of their career, and with different, um, they're all in, you know in the program, you know, seeking some further higher education around clinical research to help further their careers. What advice would you give them um, around, you know, maintaining and succeeding in a career in drug development? Uh, I think there's probably two. Um, and having, having been in, in this industry a long time, I, I worked, uh, I started out at Pfizer, and Pfizer was a wonderful company to work for. They had a very long uh, uh, history and, and all that in New York City. Um, uh, they never fired anyone during the Great Depression. Nobody lost a job at Pfizer. Um, and I'll get to that in a second. But I, I think the the one thing to do is know the regulations. Know what the regulations are. They're global now. And actually, if you read ICH, it's it's really easy reading. At one time, if you, if you read you know the the FDA regs, it was, it was kind of confusing to read. But I think it was actually well written. I wish you know the the R two came out. Uh, I thought there would be other changes that weren't. I, I kind of expected them to define deviations. Uh, they didn't do that. Uh, but I think that knowing the regulations is probably the most the most important thing. When you speak to when you talk to people globally, try to understand the certain differences in countries. For instance, in Japan, even though they signed ICH, they uh, they have a deviation to uh, an uh, addendum to ICH called JGCP. If you're doing trials in another country, know what JGCP is. There's no delegation of authority log. A stamp is a legitimate signature in in Japan. Uh, every PI is an, an employee of the hospital. So when SAEs come in, the the PI doesn't send it to the IRB. He sends it to the head of the hospital, who then sends it to the IRB. So understand the the, the regulations, um, know them well. And secondly, the most important thing, and that's why I mentioned Pfizer. I worked at a company that uh, never fired anyone, and there was a lot of complacency, and uh, people didn't really have really good skills. The company offered a lot of training that uh, probably 95% of the people, if not more, never took advantage of. Build your skills. Understand your skills and see where you fit in so that if you're if you're in data management, that you can transfer those skills 
if you want to do a you know a, a be in quality for data management vendors or something, you, you could be of you could be of value or project management that you can you can transfer because things happen. You know, uh, study managers at one time thought they were safe. They're not safe. That can be outsourced. Build your skills so that you're able to to apply them to other areas of um, uh, of the company or the industry. Excellent. Excellent advice. Well, Steve, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your experience and your perspectives with the class. I know you know that um, you've teed up several items that were relevant both to the lectures, but also you know some key key you know um, future looking perspectives with respect to you know, the globalization of trials and you know specifically within China now on the heels of that announcement. Um, so you know, for myself personally as well as from the class, thank you for for joining us today. Yeah, pleasure. All right. And with that, we'll, we'll call a close to episode three of the podcast series. Uh, thanks, everybody.